Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle. She covers deals, telecom, and media for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And we're here to talk about this merger. Philip Morris is in talks to reunite with Altria uh, in an all-stock deal. So, Tara, is it, you know, what's the rationale for be, uh, behind putting these companies back together after years of them being apart? So as we know, fewer people are smoking, especially in the U.S., and both of these companies have been working on remaking their images in recent years. If you go to either of their websites right now, you will be hard-pressed to find any mention of cigarettes, of Marlboro, anything like that. It's all about reduced-risk smoking and, quote, smoke-free products, which are, on the Philip Morris side, a product's called ICOS. It's I-Q-O-S. And that See, is launching... See, that's how you pronounce it. I, yes, I had Icos. a little trouble with that <laughs> earlier just, today. just rolled Icos. off her tongue. She's a professional. And it's funny, because it looks like it would be an anagram for something, but the companies say it isn't. Some people have uh, interpreted it to mean um, I quit ordinary smoking, but they oh. say there's really no meaning behind it. So Icos is this product that Philip Morris, which uh, is in the international markets, launched it there. It heats tobacco instead of burning it. So they kind of market it as something a little bit safer than cigarettes, but that's disputable, of course. Um, next month, they are going to be launching that in the U.S. market starting in Atlanta. And for the U.S. business, Altria gets to market that product here. So I think the goal is to join forces, unite their cash flow around these smoke-free products to try to combat the sort of uh, shrinking rates of smoking here and push more people to these newer products that they have. I am actually looking at the websites now, and they look like hospital websites. Exactly. I mean, genuinely, <laughs> it's all about not smoking, designing a smoke-free future, reducing <laughs> risk, expanding choice. Who are we? How long will PMI be in the cigarette business? Wither the state of health? I mean, really, uh, what do these companies actually sell? You'd be hard-pressed to find cigarettes here. So I guess that the question is, is the idea that they have reduced their liability to such a degree when it comes to a political front that they're not going to be extra big targets if they join forces? I think so. And I think also just the growth. I mean, obviously, like 80% of their operating income comes from cigarettes still. It's still the huge driver of their businesses, but that is slowly shrinking. Uh, their stock prices are no longer the tough one that they once were. So I think what we're seeing is they they realize that the growth markets are these vaping products, e-cigarettes like Juul, despite the controversies around that, and also pot. Uh, they've invested in marijuana companies. So I think what they're doing is if they unite forces, you know, they have that power of scale and they can kind of keep pushing these products and, and kind of monopolize that market. I'm, if you keep going on the websites, <laughs> 2018 Corporate Responsibility Progress Report, health effects of smoking, you know, talking yep. about uh, you know, supporting 21 as the legal age to purchase tobacco products. These genuinely look like advocacy These, against smoking right, exactly. websites. Wow. Yet they still sell billions of cigarettes That's where every their money year. comes from. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So like outside of the U.S., are there still growth markets for smoking? I think so, but I think the bigger thing is not looking at just traditional smoking, but looking at these newer products like the e-cigs and, and like these heating sticks that they're selling, like the Icos. Um, and I think that's where that sort of, you know, they're calling it the innovation for the market. And I think that's where the focus is right now and what investors have been looking to hear more from them on. But again, those are such a small 
portion of the business in terms of their financials that it's not really helping their stock prices right now. Putting them together might do a little bit to kind of re-excite investors to these companies. Let's talk pot. How does this sort of increase their position when it comes to uh, making marijuana products more mainstream? And is this on their agenda? I think so. I mean, obviously, right now, marijuana is legalized in Canada, and that's a relatively small market versus the U.S. But I think all of these companies that have invested in these Canadian pot producers, such as Constellation Brands, which is a U.S. uh, booze conglomerate, and then Altria going after Kronos, I think that those investments were made with an eye toward the U.S. market. And I think they see it as eventually it's going to become legal federally. And obviously, what industry is more powerful when it comes to sort of lobbying the U.S.? government, it's the cigarette industry. So I think that they see themselves as in a position, even though they're kind of the slow movers in it, to get into to, into marijuana and turn that into sort of their growth avenue. Are they, are they waiting for federal U.S. legislation? Because I know we've got a dozen or so states that have legalized marijuana. Are they waiting for federal uh, legislation? Yeah, I think you need federal because otherwise it's just not a big enough market for them to really pursue. But they are obviously looking into it. It's something they've studied for decades, we know, even quietly behind the scenes. So it's definitely something they're interested in, but not until is it federal legal for them to really make a business push. This time, is this deal going to go through? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've been writing about this deal happening for years and it never did. And I I think it makes sense. I I think it was only a matter of time. And with the launch of iCoast next month, it seems like they're really serious. Tara LaChapelle, thank you so much for being with us. As always, Tara LaChapelle is Deals Telecom and Media Columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Read her columns and all the other columnists' columns on Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N. Go on the Bloomberg. I am going to have a lot of fun perusing these websites. They even have the (laughs) same colors and they are hospital colors. I'm really looking at the sort of, you know, sort of uh, darker blue and the the red and the green. Just everything about it. It they, feels so healthy. It feels so <laughs> healthy. I mean, these are absolutely, you know, they would be they would be hospital websites if they weren't advertising cigarettes. Joining us right now is Jack Devine, former chief of CIA's Worldwide Operations and founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. Jack, thanks so much uh, for being with us again. I'm not sure where to start, but let's start with Iran. Um, you know, we just had the G7 wrap up. What is your sense of kind of where we are with Iran right now? It seems to be one of the issues on the front burner. Right. This is a uh, one of those issues that have troubled me all along. How do we deal with Iran? I think somehow we get along and we'll, maybe we won't get a break with North Korea, but Iran is really a contentious issue. And we could again end up with some sort of military conflict. I'm not saying war. I don't think that'll happen. What you have are two really staunch and strong positions now. The Iranian government, and they're very good negotiators, as you know. Uh, we tend to underestimate foreigners and their ability to do negotiations in the art of the deal which is true with North Korea as well. They've been negotiating, and I think they did a really good job last time. So to go to the table right now, um, I think is going to be hard for them. Uh, They are, in their latest messages, saying you have to lift the sanctions. Now, Trump, there's no way Trump is going to raise the, uh, uh, take away the sanctions. It's just not going to happen. So the positions are 
sort of recalcitrant strong positions that both sides for domestic reasons and uh, as well as uh, national security interest can find big big concessions however as a footnote i do think there's there it is wise to try and bring leaders together if you can sometimes you get a breakthrough so up at the when the un session takes place I wouldn't be surprised if there is a sidebar discussion, despite all of the strong posturing, that that won't happen. With Rouhani and Trump, you mean? With Rouhani and Trump. All right. I, just sort of taking a step back, do you think that we are in a more dangerous or less dangerous place than we were a year ago when you were writing uh, your summer intelligence report then? Well, I think we're in a more dangerous place because I think the Iranian situation has become increasingly more desperate economically. Uh, they've made military gestures shooting down drones. In fact, one of the key developments for the year, for me, uh, is the fact that uh, President Trump did not take a stronger action when the drone was shot down. Why? Because I think there's some very strong hawkish sentiments in the Trump administration uh, to have uh, to, to push the Iranians as hard as you can. That showed more temperance on, and, and uh, more prob uh, possibilities, if you will, by not doing that despite the pressure from elements in his administration. So um, I think he would like to have an arrangement with the, with the Iranians. I just don't see how you get to a deal that works for both sides eas easily. Are you concerned that the Americans seem to be going about this uh, alone uh, without some of the other European countries that are signatories to the original deal? Well, I think it's always better to have everybody with you. Having said that, sometimes you get everybody with you if you take the lowest common denominator fees. Once we decided to tear up the, the deal, and as I said, I wasn't thrilled with the deal, but I thought it was an okay deal, I probably would have recommended against it. Well, once you tear it up, then to get back to the table, uh, you know, if you're going to, re it's really impossible for Trump to go back with the same arrangement. There has to be a new deal. So uh, the Europeans on the other side of it need to make accommodations with the U.S. It's such an we're such an important part of everyone's game plan that they're trying to do workarounds with Iran, and that's not working out so well. Iranian oil production is still very low. Internally, economic problems are quite severe. There's a lot to be said for putting as maximum pressure on Iran to get to the table. Don't put maximum pressure to have a regime change because that doesn't seem to be in the cards and you do not know what will happen when an uprising occurs. Let's just uh, flip up a little bit and head to China because certainly uh, we talk every day about U.S.-China trade discussions, trade spats, tweets, etc. How worried are you? that the situation will escalate beyond trade to something more military there? I give that low prospects. I mean, I'm not anticipating a military uh, uh, clash between the U.S. and uh, the Chinese in the foreseeable future, okay? That we will have a Cold War, tense relationships uh, with them, uh, it seems like we're heading more and more in that, that direction. I do think it's hard to find places where there's common agreement, but on China there is a sense of we really need to do something about China. How you go about it is open to dispute. I don't see it getting anywhere near um, a military confrontation. I think the Chinese have long-range goals. To some degree, 
in terms of their military might, they're meeting those goals. I don't see where there's bones of contention. As in the case of Iran, with the Straits of Ormuz, Ormuz we, we are going to have opportunities to shoot at each other. Okay, we're in the case of the Chinese, I don't see that happening, and we're both major powers today. They have nuclear weapons, so I think the prospects are really pretty low. It's more on, in your area, especially economic conditions that I think represent the greatest challenge to the relationship. Do you think that uh, the U.S. should have pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, and, and kind of, again, once again, going in alone in discussions uh, with China, or did we have more leverage being part of that group? Again, I tend to line, uh, line up in the direction of keeping these things together, but all of them are flawed. The Iran deal was flawed. The, uh, the, the trade agreement was flawed. So you keep working the issues. Uh, at a certain point, uh, for example, with the Russians on the, uh, the nuclear uh, arms arrangement, that was so dead that you eventually have to walk away from it. I don't think that was true in the other cases you keep working with. Them. I do think multilateral... Uh, approaches thing are the best. However, I do see that we've drifted into a soft multilateral. Someone has to take charge with a stronger multilateral thing. Will Trump prevail and bring the others to his side? That's the, that's the question for me. Jack Devine, thank you so much for being with us, as always. We really appreciate you being here. Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, former chief of CIA's worldwide operations, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, the rising trade tensions between the U.S. and China are clearly roiling financial markets around the globe, and that includes investing directly in China itself. To get the latest, we welcome our next guest, Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer of Crane Shares. Uh, Crane Shares is based in New York City. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. So again, we've seen um, you know the ups and downs of the uh, trade tensions and the tweets kind of whips all markets. What about you know the folks that actually are investing in China? What are we seeing uh, in that activity? So, first and foremost, thanks for the opportunity to, to connect, Paul. Um, you know, I, I think day to day we become somewhat, you, you almost have to become immune to some of the things that you can't control, if it's uh, tweets or, or media headlines. Ultimately, the fundamentals, uh, China's been slowing for a number of years, but, but it's, it's, it's really trading um, high growth with high leverage for slower, healthier growth. And, and we're seeing that on, on the corporate earnings side as well, where, where corporate earnings were in really the, the meat of, of corporate earnings season for Hong Kong, U.S., and mainland listed companies. And, and the results have been surprisingly strong. So, so we maintain our optimism. <laughs> Is growth in China truly healthy at this point, given the fact that the uh, PBOC has engaged, or I should say, re-engaged in a re-leveraging of the economy? Well, I think you know what what the PBOC is attempting to do is is really goes back to this thesis of a tale of two Chinas. That part of China doesn't need necessarily need lower interest rates, and yet there are parts of the economy that do need help. If it's your export driven manufacturing, um, at the same time the the consumption story is is alive and well. Uh, in a broad based interest rate cut. You know, basically could fuel bubble in in the, that consumption, but but you at the same time you need to get help to the parts of the economy that are struggling under the weight of the trade war. So, 
Brendan, how about the, you know, the unrest we're seeing in Hong Kong? It, it doesn't seem to be going away. The, uh, the demonstrators continue to, you know, weekend after weekend, uh, come yep. out into, into the streets. What are you hearing from investors as to, gee, does that just adds another level of uncertainty in that part of the world that maybe, you know, I might sit on the sidelines as it relates to allocating more capital there? Certainly, investor sediment around Hong Kong, uh, if one looks at the Hang Seng, has been very, very depressed. Uh, certainly, you know, it does appear that it's very unlikely you'll see a uh, military-type intervention. Um, I suspect Carrie Lam uh, will be removed at some stage, uh, that the populace in Hong Kong has become um, very disenfranchised to her leadership. Uh, but I, I do think the, the hope is that if you just leave it alone, it will go away. But it seems to be quite persistent. And certainly the local populace is, is worried just about how is China going to react? But I think they maintain the hands-off approach as we've seen thus far. Brennan, at what point in a potential escalation of the trade skirmish between the U.S. and China would you grow more bearish on China? Well, I, I think a lot of the pessimism has already been built in, Lisa. If one looks at the P.E. ratios for both mainland China as well as Hong Kong or U.S. listed companies, the valuations are as about as pessimistic as I've seen them, unfortunately. Uh, so I think a lot of that is built in. I think, I think the bigger worry, if you step back and, and say big picture, would be that this, is China being pushed into some sort of enemy role? That's something for those who do business there. I, I don't see that. I don't ever feel that. But in Increasingly, you know, China is being put on that pedestal. I, th I think that's the big worry. So, Brendan, what are you seeing in terms of the fund that flows into, say, like China ETFs and things like that? Are people, are you seeing it slow down or are people still engaged? We're definitely, uh, the uh, U.S., China ETF industry is is getting outflows. We've seen, uh, we actually had uh, the largest China ETF here in the U.S. lost $100 million overnight. At the same time, we did have MSCI's inclusion last night, uh, where we had a, a net uh, $1.57 billion of foreign buying in Chinese A shares. So, so the ETFs are react, the China ETFs are seeing outflows at the same time because of the MSCI inclusion. We are getting inflows in, in that regard. How does the UN factor in here? We are seeing a, a pretty significant depreciation in the UN crossing the seven per dollar threshold and then going beyond. How much of an issue is that going to be, uh, both in terms of companies repaying their dollar debt as well? Well as their ability to sort of compete internationally. The, the, the yuan depreciation has been somewhat mild. I mean, relative to EMFX, it's, it's in line with what, what, what we've seen. Um, at the same time, I think it's very different than August of 2015, where I've got some wrinkles on my forehead uh, from, from that particular month, where you, you had a very unexpected decline. Because, because people kind of expect, you know, one, you have a very strong dollar. At the same time, you have China is slowing. So some, some weakness is expected in the RMB. As long as in a controlled manner, I, th I think we're okay. Thank you so much for being with us, Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares.
Uh, let's talk about a particularly risky segment of the market, Argentina. We're looking at bonds where the implied yields are currently 50 to 75% on short dated notes. Kind of shocking, and investors are flocking uh, to the nation to check it all out. But let's talk about what the prospects of default, recovery, and actual yield is. Damien Sassauer, <laughs> Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. So, with our Argentina, what is the bull case and what is the bear case? Oh, goodness. Okay, well, the bull case is we hear something good out of uh, out of Buenos Aires today. We have Alejandro Werner of the IMF visiting this week, and his contingent is going to decide whether or not to make a $5.4 billion disbursement next month. That would be the third disbursement of the IMF loan. If we get good news there and the IMF doesn't hold that back, that would definitely give some comfort to markets. We have seen the peso stabilize at around 55, but that's the short-term bullish case. The bearish case is obviously that Alberto Fernandez um, is indeed elected and sort of goes off the rails. And basically, I mean, we, we're talking about possible debt restructuring, government control over grain prices. We're talking about multiple FX regimes locally. Um, that would all be very, very bad. But look, Fernandez is on the tape this week um, saying he, he, he stands by the IMF mandate. Um, they both stand for the same thing insofar as Argentina is concerned, economic growth, lower unemployment, um, lower debt, uh, and so forth. And so look, you know, you know, there is some reason to be optimistic. I know our friends at Morgan Stanley are. Um, they actually moved Argentina from underweight to market weight this week. They think at, call it 40 cents on the dollar, the, um, their, the Argentine dollar debt is actually a buy here. Um, but, you know, from distressed investors that I've talked to, and those are really the only ones that are going to go near that paper at current <laughs> levels, you know, they'd want to see it come in a little bit more down into the 30s. So, you know, the verdict is still out as to whether or not it's a buy yet. But um, certainly, you know, we need to see more news uh, from the IMF in order to really discern that. Has the, the trouble we've seen in Argentina, has that had been a little bit of a contagion around Latin America, or is it kind of confined to that country. Well, you know, it's that's interesting. I mean, it, contagion is it takes many different forms. So if it's if it's real economy, real risk contagion where you see something on the order of, you know, early last year when, you know, all of emerging markets sort of caved, I don't think we're going to see that this time. Positioning's not nearly as heavy, it's not nearly as concentrated as it once were, but we've seen some really big losses some, from some very um, venerable portfolio managers over the past month with, with the with the decline in the RG peso, including um, our friends at, at Franklin Templeton. And so we wrote to that this morning. Look, the risk of contagion would be more of I think it'd be more uh, isolated to EM dollar credit, specifically high yield credit, because let's be clear, if people don't want to sell RG debt at current levels because they still believe in the fundamental theme, they'd probably wind up selling other high yield emerging market sovereign debt. So, you know, we pointed out some bonds that are potentially suffering from concentration risk. Um, wait, wait, just stop right there. I, I want to just accentuate this point because this yeah. is actually incredibly important. The idea that you have these very big investors who had very big positions in Argentina and now are facing, what do you do with the fact that the assets have fallen out of bed, prices have gone down? Do you sell or do you sell other bonds? And you're saying that they are likely to sell other bonds rather than take actual losses on all of the Argentinian debt right now, correct? Well, it, it depends on supply demand dynamics. And, and what I would say is it depends on redemptions. Because look, Hassenstab and some of the guys at FT are still very widely regarded. And people were completely on board with his concentration in Argentina when this happened. So does that mean the redemptions from clients from investors in this fund are going to come through we're not quite sure but if they do what's Hassan Stubb to do is he going to capitulate and start selling RG debt or is he going to sell other debt that's in his portfolio that may not have come off as significantly I I, I wouldn't I don't know <laughs> so I mean but it's not all doom and gloom down there Chile has actually been uh 
pretty good success story for EM investors. What's driving that performance? Well, it's going to be copper prices in Chile and most, and same same goes for Peru for the most part. But you know, I mean, look, Chile's come off a bit. I mean, the real risk now, I mean, I mean, Paul is is Brazil. Um, okay. If you see some of the things that are going on with the fires in the Amazon and the way Bolsonaro is openly rejected a $22 million aid package from uh, from the G7 just this weekend, he's actually gotten in a little bit of a spat with uh, Macron. He turned it down because he, he was insulted, he, but he thinks he was insulted by Macron. Okay. Correct. He felt that the Europeans were basically treating Brazil a, 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 as a colony again, right. you know, so he took that very personally, or at least that's the way the news, uh, the news has kind of interpreted that. I think the real, the real thing is all of a sudden this became a Facebook spat over, you know, first ladies between Macron and Bolsonaro. I don't know how that, you know, masticized so quickly, but, but that's where that went. I mean, look, just in terms of Brazil, uh, I can't Brazil, believe, just by the way, I can't believe that you're saying this with a straight face <laughs> and you are that this is, we're talking about a Facebook spat but over the wives of two leaders of nations and I'm, that's what bond markets are watching I right mean now. look Carry you have on. to understand the Amazon rainforest is a huge I mean it's I mean it's 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 the biggest rainforest on the planet it's a huge source of oxygen for all of us and you know fires are up 83 percent year there are 77,000 fires raging because ranchers and loggers and farmers are trying to clear land so they can raise more cattle or at least that's what you know uh, prevailing thought would have you believe and look Bolsonaro's doing very little about that. His disapproval rating's now up yep. to 54% off the back of this. That's not very good for for him and for the country. Quite so right. emerging market investors, they, like they don't have enough to worry about. Now they have to worry about Facebook spats and uh, <laughs> Amazon uh, fires. Damien Sassauer, thanks so much for joining us. Damien is Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, he covers all things emerging markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.